Help defend the church by becoming a supporter of 1 Peter 5. Your tax-deductible contributions enable us to continue our work to restore Catholic culture and rebuild Catholic tradition. Make a real difference in the church. Go to 1peter5.com forward slash donate today. You're listening to the 1 Peter 5 podcast. It is a real joy for us. Rebuilding Catholic culture, restoring Catholic tradition. It's the year of mercy. 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 We keep hearing the word mercy. Reminds me of the Brady Bunch. Mercy, mercy, mercy. But what is mercy? What is mercy mean? It has a dictionary definition. It's the compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. If it is in my power to punish you, to inflict harm upon you, retributive harm for some injustice that you have done, and I choose not to do so, I have shown you mercy. But why would it be within my power to inflict harm upon you or to punish you? Well, it would be because I have the authority to do so. It's the only way it could be within my power. You see, God has the right to judge all of us. And insofar as he has the right to judge us, he has the right to determine in his manifest and infinite love to withhold the punishment due to our sins because he desires our good above all else. He has the right, he has the authority to be merciful to us. Thomas Aquinas in the Summa Theologica defines mercy as heartfelt sympathy for another's distress. Do any of us as parents doubt as we look upon the plight of our children, children who have disobeyed us countless times in the same way, who keep making the same mistake, with whom we may be incredibly angry for a time, but we look upon them with love. We see in them the love by which they were begotten. We see in them ourselves. We see in them their future. We see in them the unique and lovable things that we have seen in them from the time that they were helpless little babies. And our hearts soften. Because despite the fact that they may deserve the harshest punishment for their crimes, we don't want to give it to them. We don't want to hurt those that we love the most. And yet, as parents, we know. We know that if we are unduly merciful, if we are merciful with no expectations or conditions, what ends up happening is we ruin the child. The scriptures tell us, spare the rod, spoil the child. And people don't like that expression because of its 
connotation of corporal punishment, but regardless of whether it's corporal or not, if you do not punish, if you do not follow through on the penalties levied for offenses, for sins, then what you end up telling the person who is guilty of those things is that it really doesn't matter what they do at all. I keep trying to explain this to my own children. Yesterday we got home from Mass, and my son Alex, who is six, wanted a treat of some kind. I don't know, chocolate something he wanted. I don't remember what it was. And I said to him, Alex, how many times at Mass did I have to tell you to sit up and pay attention? How many times in the car did I have to tell you to stop fighting with your siblings? How many times did mom and I have to tell you not to get undressed in the car before we got home just because you wanted to get out of your church clothes? How many times did we have to tell you, put your shoes away so that we know where they are the next time we have to go somewhere? I'm not mad at you, son. I'm frustrated with you. I'm disappointed in you because I have to keep saying over and over again the things that you should do that I already know you know you should do. I'm not going to punish you, but... Neither am I going to reward you because if I reward you when you don't deserve it, why should you try? If you can walk into the store and take whatever you want, any candy bar you want, any toy, and you don't have to pay for it, why would you ever, ever choose to pay for those things? You wouldn't. You just take what you want. So in my home and in my family and in my life, if you were allowed to do whatever you wanted and never face consequences, if you never had to pay for your sins, why would you ever try to become better? It's easier not to. He understood it. He's six. He wasn't happy, but at six, he could grasp the concept. So what about us? What is it about the church's current conception and even obsession with the idea of mercy that rubs us the wrong way? I can tell you what it is for me. Mercy is predicated upon repentance. It's predicated upon an understanding of and acceptance and ownership of the wrongs that we have done, the sins that we have committed. I have failed you, Lord. Now, if any of you are like me, you find yourself going to confession again and again and again for the same sins. And if you're anything like me, you find yourself asking God, why do you keep forgiving me for this? There's even an element of presumption there. I, I, I must be presuming upon God's mercy if I keep doing the same things over and over again, knowing I'm just going to wind up back in the confessional. Because what Catholic doesn't know in the moment of committing a sin, I'm going to regret this later. If you love God, if you care about doing what he wants, then when you fall off the wagon you know that you're going to repent because it's not as though you've made a decision at that moment that you would prefer eternal damnation to 
to eternal beatitude. You just haven't made that choice. You've simply decided at this moment, in this given point in time, I want this thing that makes me feel good more than I care about the consequences that I presume will come later on. I'll have time to make it right. I'll have time to fix it. It's easier to ask forgiveness than permission. We all do this. We all have root sins and vices. We all repeat ourselves in the confessional. And if we actually grow in virtue, perhaps some of those things diminish. But the fact is that mercy is not something that we are owed. God's mercy is gratuitous. It's entirely free. It's entirely free. He doesn't have to give it to us. He doesn't owe us anything. We're all born into this world under Satan's power. We are born into this world as fallen human beings with the sin of Adam on our soul. We do not deserve heaven. We deserve eternal death. And it may not seem fair. I think every single human being who has ever been raised to understand what happened in the third chapter of Genesis has thought, well, I wouldn't have done that. Why do I have to be accountable for what Adam and Eve did? But the thing is, if we look at our lives and we look at what we do, I think we might more honestly be able to recognize, no, I screw up all the time. I know what's right and I know what's wrong and I still do it. Still do it. So we are born into this world under original sin and under Satan's power. It's why, in the traditional rite of baptism, multiple exorcisms are performed over the child to drive out any demons that may have attached themselves to a soul that is not in a state of sanctifying grace. So we're all fallen. We all make these mistakes. We all make them frequently and repetitively. But mercy means that, at least on some level, we recognize that we've done wrong. I will be merciful much more readily toward a child in my home who realizes that what he has done is wrong and feels sorrow for his sins. Now, I may know just as well as any father knows that that little boy or that little girl is probably going to end up doing the same thing again. But when I see the tears in their eyes, when I recognize the shame that they feel, when I know that they know they have disappointed their mother and their father and that it actually means a great deal to them to not do that, I want to give them another chance. That is the meaning of mercy. We look at someone with love. We want their perfection and betterment. And so we don't give them a free pass. We don't give them a way out. We don't wipe clean their guilt with no repentance. But we look upon their sorrow, even if that sorrow is transitory and fleeting, and we tell them, I love you. I know you can do better. I want you to try again. There's a difference between that 
and the kind of mercy that is being pushed on our Catholic faith at this time. There's a difference between mercy that recognizes repentance and the desire for perfection, even if that perfection is currently out of reach, and a false concept of mercy that says, we will welcome you, we will not uh, set up barriers to you, but we will not expect anything from you either. You see, mercy is a fruit of love, of desiring the good of the other, in the case of sinfulness, of desiring their eternal salvation. But saying to someone, I accept you in your sins. I will not set up obstacles to you continuing your sins. I will embrace you, and I will not ask you to repent of your sins. That is not mercy. It is hatred. Anyone who embraces the sin of another, who tells them, what you're doing is wrong, but I don't expect you to change and I love you anyway, you're desiring that person's damnation. Think about it. I don't care whether or not you change. I don't care whether or not you do better. I'll just love you anyway. I will implicitly give you permission to continue in your adulterous second marriage. I will give you implicit permission to continue in your homosexual relationship. I will give you implicit permission to do whatever thing it is that you're doing that places you outside the state of grace and in danger of hell. How is that love? What part of love says, I know you have a fatal disease and it's going to kill you. And I know you don't know it, but I'm not going to help you find the cure. I'm just going to tell you I love you and watch you die. It's despicable. It's damnable. And it's one of the reasons why so many souls are being lost. As we move forward in this year of mercy, there are opportunities that exist that maybe we wouldn't have chosen. I was at the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception the other day. And that basilica in Washington, D.C. Um, has one of the holy doors that have been designated for the year of mercy, the Jubilee of Mercy, as, as one of those that may be passed through, meeting all the other normal conditions, to obtain a plenary indulgence, as determined by Pope Francis. I don't like what Pope Francis is doing. I don't think that he's helping souls get to heaven. I think he's leading them astray. But as far as I know, he's the Pope. He has the authority to loose and to bind. And if he tells me that something concrete, like 
passing through a Jubilee door can give me a plenary indulgence, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to walk through it. And I'm going to say those prayers. And I'm going to meet the conditions for that plenary indulgence because I need mercy. You see, everywhere I go, every day, I am reminded of my own sinfulness. I am confronted all the time with my sinfulness. I'm confronted with the fact that I don't deserve salvation. And I find myself frequently begging God to just make an exception for me. Please, Lord. I'm so stupid. I do so many stupid things. This is not who I want to be. Please forgive me. Please, if I die this night, remember me. Please accept my desire for repentance, even though it may not be fully baked. Maybe I don't really have a detachment from my sins. Maybe I don't really have true contrition. Maybe I just did something incredibly stupid 15 minutes ago. Please, help me to be better. Help me to have a clean and contrite heart. Help me to love you and to have a firm purpose of amendment, to actually change my life this time. Not just to go to the confessional, to feel bad, to dump my sins on the poor priest, and then to walk out and three days later do it again. Or maybe the same day. Mercy works hand in hand with humility. You cannot help but be humbled by recognition of your own sinfulness. Nobody can wish themselves humble. Nobody can promote themselves as humble people. If you write a book about how humble you are, if you tell everyone, I'm humble, chances are you're not. The humble people are the last people on the block to know about it. But there are experiences that we have that are humbling, that bring us down a few notches, that remind us of why he died on the cross for us. And sometimes I think, even though God obviously never wills our sin, especially not mortal sin, that he will allow us to fall into those sins in order to be confronted with our need for his redemptive sacrifice and his mercy, his authentic mercy. If we do not come to him with an attitude of supplication, if we do not come to him on our knees, and honestly, in tears, like the prodigal son who comes home not simply seeking the forgiveness of his father without conditions, but comes home weeping, realizing what he has squandered. The prodigal son analogy matters not just in terms of our own sinfulness and our own return to God. It matters in terms of the way we relate to others, to our own children. 
The father of the prodigal son, when his son laughed in a fit of pride, he said, Father, give me my inheritance. I don't want to be a part of this anymore. I'm going to go off and do my own thing. His father gave it to him, but he said, I cannot go with you. I cannot be a part of what you're doing. He basically said, you're dead to me. You take this, you go, you're on your own. You don't have my love and support unconditionally. You don't have me saying, I disagree with your life choices, son, but I still love you. You're out of my life. And when we have children who do those things or friends, we don't do them any favors by saying, you know what? You're, you're just living an incredibly sinful life, but it doesn't matter to me because I just love you anyway. And I accept you. And hey, do you want to go out and see a movie this weekend? You want to go to lunch tomorrow? You've got to say no. You've got to say, as long as you're continuing down this path, I can't be a part of your life. I cannot give even my implicit consent to what you're doing. Because I love you, I will not lie to you by pretending that everything is okay. Some people see that as cruel and as harsh. And I tell you what, as a parent, when you're in that situation, or as a friend, it may feel harsh. It may feel cruel. But we must remember that we exist to know, love, and serve God in this life and to be happy with him in the next. And anything that is not leading us to heaven is leading us away from it. We're not here for good feelings. We're not here to make sure that others, you know, don't feel uncomfortable about bad decisions that they make. That's not our point in life. There comes a time where the teaching moments end. And the distance has to begin. And so it goes for our shepherds in the church. It's up to them to say to their flocks, these are the things you may do and you may not do. And if you choose these things, we will not go with you. We will not hold your hand on the way to hell. We will admonish the sinner, which is a spiritual work of mercy. We will instruct the ignorant so that you know exactly that what you're doing is wrong, which is a work of mercy. But our shepherds don't do these things, which is why we have synods that lead people to believe that no matter what choices they make in their marriage or sexuality or in their life, we'll find some way to quote-unquote accompany and quote-unquote encounter them. I'm sorry, that's bullcrap. It's demonic. And anyone who says it should be summarily ignored. I think that God is actually a fan of irony. I mean, anybody can find examples of that, I think, in their own life. But I suspect there will be irony in this Jubilee year of mercy. I suspect that God will show mercy in ways 
that nobody expects. And it won't have anything to do with the false pretenses of mercy that have been pushed upon the church by the Pope, by some of his closest advisors in the Curia. It's going to be a very different sort of mercy. Because mercy can be visited upon us in different ways. It may not seem very intuitive, but if we are chastised in such a way that we repent, if we are chastised in such a way that we change our lives and have a chance at salvation, guess what, everybody? That's merciful. But that chastisement can be brutal. And I expect it will be. Even the fact that Francis is our Pope, that's a chastisement. That is a sure sign that God is angry with the world and with his people. He has allowed a destroyer, a man who leads people astray and into sin, to sit upon the Petrine throne. It takes those nominal Catholics and confuses them even further, and it takes the Orthodox Catholics and confounds them, leads some of them even to despair. Francis is a winnowing fan. This is not stuff for the faint of heart. But we must remember that whom God loves, he chastises. This is divinely revealed truth. He's putting us through our paces. He is reminding us of our need to be dependent upon him and him alone. He is reminding us that we must fall back on those things that are established, on the teachings of his church that cannot be changed, on the kind of liturgy that nourishes us, that it fosters in us an attitude of repentance and supplication and the worship of truly divine things, not things of men. I submit to you that this all is transpiring for a purpose. And if it seems now that there is an eclipse of the sun of Catholic truth, Well, the sun will return because all eclipses are transitory. The darkness will lift. But the question is whether we will be there on the other side. Will we survive it or will we despair? Will we come to a true understanding of mercy? Or... Out of a desire to placate the feelings of others will we become vicious and vile. We're going to have to learn what it means to make sacrifices, to do penance, to do all the things that I can't stand doing because I am a pampered American. But we have no choice. God is demanding more from us right now. 
I don't know what that's going to mean, and I don't know what shape that's going to take. We're a month and eight days into 2016, and this is the first podcast I've recorded because I don't know what to tell you. I'm still trying to get the lay of the land. I'm still trying to work through my spiritual, emotional, and mental fatigue that I hoped to recover from at the end of last year. We have before us an absolutely daunting task. But he will give us the grace to survive it. And if we have the will to do it, then we will survive. But it's time to start building our will. Lent starts in two days. I intend to do some writing on some of the previously more ascetic practices of Lent that were imposed on the entire church. Not because I have ever embraced them myself, but because I have purposefully avoided them. And I think it's time for us to all start wrapping our minds around what prayer and fasting really means. How do we do it in a world where there's so much abundance, where the only thing between us and indulgence is is an act of the will, and our wills are weak. God is presenting us with challenges that require us to either build our wills or give up. What are you going to do? What am I going to do? Are we going to rise to the challenge? I want to say yes, but I know myself. I'm going to fail. That's what I keep thinking. If I try to do a traditional Lenten fast, I'm going to screw it up. I am too used to my comforts. I'm too used to walking upstairs from spending a day sitting in a chair writing and reaching for some comfort food. I've come to terms with being almost 40 and overweight and out of shape. These are not things that are just about vanity. They're not just things about physical fitness. They are about spiritual fitness. Are we ready for what comes? Are we strong enough to resist the spiritual attacks and temptations that will be thrown our way? Are we physically ready to do what we have to do to defend our lives or to give them up in the defense of our faith? I like the idea of saying, oh, yeah, well, I love my faith. If anybody you know, ever put me on the spot, I think I could be a martyr. Be like Flannery O'Connor. I could be a martyr as long as you kill me quick. But I don't know. I don't know how afraid I would be in those moments. I had a health scare recently. And I don't even know if it was anything big because I'm a guy and I still haven't gone to the doctor about it. But... It made me reflect on what would happen if I died right now. What would happen if I just keeled over? 
Like in those moments, in those last moments, as I realized I was about to go, how much regret would there really be? How much begging and pleading with God to give me more time so that I could undo some of my screw-ups would there be? I still have the mentality of a young man where I have time. I have my life ahead of me. I, I can fix things. I'll get around to those important things that I haven't gotten around to. And then I realize that this year is 20 years since I graduated from high school. It feels like it was just a year or two ago, but it wasn't. I'm getting older. And I think we're all getting older, and our children may actually end up having to grow old and wise faster than we. Because the world is not a forgiving place at this time. So I encourage you to have a productive Lent. I encourage you to reflect on what mercy really is, how we may best receive it, and how we may show it to others. If you have had a bad few Lents, like I have, or years were, I'm not even kidding. I gave up giving things up for Lent and thought it was very clever. Because I was like, you know what? Life's hard enough. Why should I do this? Don't do that. Make it count. Actually grow in virtue. Actually find a way to get closer to him. Maybe together, if we do that, we can get a grip on what's going on and what we need to do next. Because I tell you what, I don't see reinforcements incoming. We're on our own. And we may get some help at some point from certain members of the hierarchy, but for the most part, this crisis that we are in the midst of and the direction that the church and the world is heading on, it means we are alone in this. A very small minority of us are going to be on our own fighting an uphill battle. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. Are you ready to take that on? Because I tell you what, I'm not. I may do this every day, but I also know what I'm like when I'm not writing and when I'm not podcasting. I know what it's like when I get done and I walk upstairs and I say to my wife, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm telling people. They want answers. They want me to say what we should do next. And I don't have a clue. I don't even know how to run my own life. I don't even know how to be a good husband and a good father and a virtuous man. How can I tell others to do it? So please pray for me. And I'll pray for you. And I promise I will try to push through the confounding malaise that is upon me and give you more podcasts this year with the kind of individuals who figured some things out and will help us to move forward. Thanks for listening and have a very fruitful and spiritually profitable year of mercy. God bless you. You have been listening to the One Peter Five podcast. This has been a production of 1 Peter 5 Incorporated, copyright 2016. 
all rights reserved. Please remember to visit us online at www.1peter5.com. You can join our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash 1peter5 and follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash, you guessed it, 1peter5. If you feel we have provided you with something of value, please hit our donate page located at 1peter5.com forward slash donate and make a contribution. It's tax deductible and not only helps pay for our web hosting and the fine content we provide, but keeps food on our tables, coffee in our cups, and the lights on, which really helps us see what we're doing. Until next time, I'm Steve Skojak. Thanks.